Hello, my name is Inga Haugen, and I have the esteemable honor of being a guest on Cedric Shannon's podcast for this episode. And uh, there's a little bit more of an introduction, a little bit into the episode. So I thought I would just preface by saying that if you want to find Inga on social media, you can find me on Twitter at farmgirlatlarge. You can email me at ihaugen at vt.edu. And you can catch my website, farmgirlatlarge.com, if you're interested in connecting with me. And I hope that you can enjoy the conversation between Cedric Shannon of Weathertop Farm and Inga Haugen, uh, the agriculture librarian at Virginia Tech. So... We're recording. All right. We're going we're gonna to do this talking thing. We'll do it. Yes. So, Cedric, would you like to introduce yourself to be able to say who you are and give a little bit of a background of why we might be having this conversation? Yeah. Well, Cedric Shannon, I guess. It's full name. Uh, I help run Weathertop Farm here in Floyd, Virginia, and we are a rotationally based uh, meat farm basically so we do sheep and we do cows and we do hogs and we do chickens for eggs and we do chickens for meat and we do turkeys and sometimes some ducks so um, but everything's based really um, seeing the pasture as our perennial crop seeing that as the ultimate permaculture and so we are trying to manage all our livestock to sort of copy and imitate, mimic what we see in, you know, ecology. The, the type of ecology has normally built the soils of the Midwest, you know, with the bison and with all the different diversity of animals and all the different um, uh niches and ecological systems and feedback loops and all and trying to imitate that a little bit on our farm so that in the end we're taking care of the the foundation which is the pasture taking care of that and by managing the animals well and um, so we both can provide we can both build soil and provide really nutritious food Pretty cool. Well, I'm Inga Haugen, and my current job is the agriculture librarian at Virginia Tech. Mm-hmm. And so before I was a librarian, I was a farmer. And so I was a farmer back in Minnesota, and I was a rotational grazing dairy farmer. And so when I moved to a new space, I needed I needed a connection to a farm, and I needed to know how they were raising their critters so I could have some uh, meat in my freezer and eggs in my fridge that I appreciated. And so, uh, having met Cedric out at the market, I asked if I could come and do a farm visit, and uh, that went pretty good. And so, six years later, they're still talking to me, and they still let me (laughs) hang out. So, uh, that's kind of cool. But uh, over the years, there has gotten to be a bit of a rhythm where I come visit when you're at market, and when things are not busy, we talk. And we talk farming. And that's F. A-R-M-I-N apostrophe. Thank you very much. It's Farman. And 
it's and all things surrounding yeah well because because it all does connect because we live within systems and so we have to understand how we exist within those systems and how those systems influence us and it is an utter luxury to be able to speak with someone who has the depth and the breadth to be able (laughs) to converse but not have the same perspective and so our venn diagrams are not a total circle but at least we're in the same arena to be able to to kick some ideas around and I am very curious to be able to uh, record some of these conversations and see if they can be of use to other folk because sometimes that's the way that it goes, you know? So part of my job as a librarian uh, in the academic field is to be able to work with scholarly communication And at a land grant, we have the aspect of being able to work with applied research and extending the research at the university out into the world. And uh, so this is one way I'm going to to try that and see if it it works. And if nothing else, I'm going to have a blast because talking with streak is fun. (laughs) So that's where we're Hopefully we'll forget that we're recording and we'll just get talking (laughs) like we normally do. And then we're going to have to adjust the volume because we get loud and we get giggly. But it'll be fun. Yeah. So... Cedric had said that we should plan some questions to be able to talk about stuff. And I said, oh, to heck with it. We should just start talking. Go go wherever it goes. We were talking on Saturday at Market. And um, we were talking about how some of the supply chain systems are being disrupted in different ways from how they have been put together over the years. So that is one entry point to a, a aspect of, of conversation. For someone who is new to considering the systems approach of farming and how it all pulls together with different things, how would we be able to talk about how our inputs, and I'm not talking about inputs into soil because that's a, that's a different type of input, but I'm talking about the, the things that you need to be able to do the kind of work you want to do. I mean, we rely upon the systems around us, so like chickens. If you want to be able to raise chickens, you need chickens. And what came first? The chicken or the egg? Yes, who knows? But so, gotta... Yeah, I, I'm i definitely... Um, a, my language is definitely... Uh, I use a lot of general systems theory language. So, you know, hopefully I won't get to... Uh, you know, hopefully the way I use the words, if they don't know them, they'll be self-evident just because... I think it's just a very... It's a pretty decent way of of looking at things a little bit more holistically, if we can even still use that word. It's been way overused, but just um, because it's overused and it's turning into a trope doesn't mean that it doesn't have some to underneath it. Yeah, it becomes a trope for a reason. So, um, the the biggest part about it is has to do with scale, and has to do with efficiency, and I in my podcast and different things, I, I talk about different kinds of efficiencies. All right. So we have, and I'm always juxtapositing, uh, reductionism and versus sort of a holistic or a, you know, general systems theory or whatever you want to look at it, just sort of an ecology, you know, web, um, and reductionistic is always seeing things in terms of ingredients, seeing things in terms of individual parts. And they're, so you begin to, to make a whole, you just connect parts. And then when you're doing that kind of, when you're in that 
paradigm, that framework, you're, you, con you connect things linearly, in a linear fashion. Linearly? <laughs> a to B to C to D. Yes. You can't get to E unless going through A through D. And so when you're doing that, you're in that sort of factory mode. So you're not only atomizing and compartmentalizing uh, parts in terms of just actual uh, things, you're also compartmentalizing actions or even systems. You might even have systems with that, but you're compartmentalizing those. So you know, if you think of the factory, you, you figure out a motion to compartmentalize into an individual action so that if you can make a robot arm that takes you know this piece of metal over here and it screws it over here and it just rep repetitive and keeps doing it over and over again. And so that's your lean, you know, your, your lean sort of efficiency, um, which obviously has a place at times, you know, to be efficient and to work fast. But um, this is completely dominates, um, especially when you're reductionistic. You have this sort of, you always want to get rid of waste, right? And I contrast that to the ecologic principle that when you have waste, it's not, it's, maybe it's waste, maybe it's not, but what, what nature's going to do with that, it's not going to get rid of it, but it's going to create another system that's based on that as an input. So, and in an ecological principle of life begets life. So, if you have a system where nutrients are going through, that means more nutrients are cycled through this little system, makes everything that much more available for more nutrients and creates another niche here. And, and it just, it's this expansive, abundant, just really, you're, you're taking any sort of waste and you're making it one more feedback loop, one more system to add into the whole to make it greater, more and more diversity. So you have, you're managing towards two different things. So you manage one, if you want to be lean and efficient, you're going to, basically, you want to have massive things, massive organizations. You want to have, you know, right now there's four main, well, four main companies that do all, like, 80% of the food chain slaughtering, no, you know, yeah. seeds. You might mm -hmm. have five main, you know, that own the patents and all that on 80% of the seeds. So everything's getting... Um, streamlined into bigger and bigger things. So that doesn't really happen in nature. It only happens in brittle environments. And they're called brittle because if one piece breaks, so much is at stake, right? Eggs in the basket, right? And so to answer the question of the supply chain and all that, it's basically, it's a scale that we're trying to make everything super, super efficient and not resilient. So we've gone way overboard on this efficiency side and don't remotely follow nature's ecological principles of having many niches, and then each one of those creates a a little you know little economy of its own, or a little you know system or nutrient cycle on its own. So that comes back to local, right? And that comes back to bigger is better, or Walmart, or all that versus you know small communities within boundaries and restraints and and well what really is our food shed you know what is our you know what makes sense to support you know if we keep things local there's a sense of place then you have some restraints and you actually have something informing you as to what scale is appropriate what size is appropriate that's exactly what i was thinking about when you're talking about communities and local uh, what defines a community and what defines local and some of that is what the constraints are for um, how you can make it work. 
And because there has been so many systems put in place through policy and procedure and preference over time, the different types of communities and systems that were available in my grandparents' time don't work, air quotes around work, Mm. at this point because those smaller niches have been squashed flat in the name of bigger is better in different ways. So I think, um, I think of the analogy of the, the towns back in the days when the railroads were coming through, if you got a railroad, you went boom, you Mm. didn't get the railroad, you went bust Mm. because that was a a type of resource and, and a way to move things and whatever else that way. So then, communities coalesced around that resource mm. you know and you you see that if you've ever got goldfish and you sprinkle food along the top the goldfish go where the food is right that, to, just to was... totally mix my metaphors yeah <laughs> i thought you were gonna say rivers rivers is what in you know in, in the congo and africa that's was the trains mm-hmm. railroads of the day mm-hmm. and yes yeah, so most things sort of congregated along the rivers there but yeah yeah I I like too that I think so many things are fractal and that I see the same issue that the way we understand the economic aspect of skills is the same way we're applying it to the soil, right? So we're constantly blowing up, imploding, not exploding, but imploding economies. So Walmart moves in, or here it's um, Dollar General or whatever in more rural areas. But you're you just you, the cheap. And you just have such large scale that you can just have the tiniest of margins and make the top people top are making money. I don't know about all the workers, but and we do that with the soil, right? So we're always putting inputs and we're imploding it. We're not allowing the economies of the soil to work. And so I, I think that saying these kind of principles are fractal and they can just keep being applied at all kinds of kinds of levels. When you said fractal, I thought you were going to go in a different direction, so I'm glad that I hushed and just listened. But to bring it back to something that I had thought of in that kind of space, it depends on how uh, you look at it, right? So the um, scope and the... What's the word that you use when you zoom in on things and you zoom out of things? Oh, what's your resolution? Resolution. Yeah. Granular, bird's eye. Yes, yes. So how you look at things can, can really matter, but then that aspect of... Fractility. I don't think that's a word, but I'm going to use it. Uh, there's there's things that echo, yes. and 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 you can see those patterns regardless of what resolution you're looking at. If you know how to look for them, to be able to to see how they um, happen at the different scales that things work at, um, and bringing it all the way back, you use the word waste. If there is waste from one system, you know, when you're working lean, there can be waste. And what are you going to do with the waste and it will, how you have it go away? Well, there is no away. Things don't go away. You know, you can bring, bring things to a, a pile, (laughs) but it's going to be a pile, you know, in your front yard, in your backyard or in somebody (laughs) else's backyard. If you have, if you have brought things together, and yeah, so, but um, just to push a little bit, right? So lean right now, a lot of organic vegetable farmers are using lean. And so they're talking about waste in terms of labor, in terms of time, in terms of... Um, so they're not even necessarily thinking about it in um, terms of material things. And I find that interesting because at a certain point, yes, it's true. But if we keep pushing it and pushing it that way, right, where, where does the community come in? 
right? Because community eats off a of waste, so to speak, right? It eats off of that time wasted, right? Or so I think so. We're starving our communities. <laughs> mm, yes, yes, we are. We are when we when we serve the the uh, ever ever open maw of efficiency. Mm. We we starve other aspects when we keep pushing in that direction. Yeah. We we do cause. And I tie problems. efficiency also to, um, the, like the black swan. Have you read Taleb? Uh, Nicholas uh, Taleb. There's another name in there. Nassim, I think. Anyway, so he wrote the black swan, and that was about. Um, it's about like probability, and it's about that event that you can't really predict. Oh yeah 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 yeah. yeah. And so he talks about how he sort of sees two realities, <laughs> two worlds, and kind of fits really well with my idea of efficiency. So he talks about there's mediocristan. So that's the land of just bell curves and just normal things. So like if you're a, you know, uh, the how big does an elm get, right? You know, or how big is a human? Because we can find out how big an elm gets, <laughs> right? So an adult human or whatever, and and. You may like the averages between five and six, you know, feet, whatever. And then the whole bell curve, you're, you're, as you get down to four feet, you have less and less people. You get down, you know, three feet. Oh, my goodness, there's hardly any. And as you further away you get from that middle average, the less and less probability there is, you know, to have a 10-foot, 11-foot human mm -hmm. adult. And then and it pretty much goes down to zero. And so... You know, that's a, a kind of probabilities that's like the average and the mean and it's, you know, and those are all sort of rooted in things that are grounded in space and time and physical reality, right? And versus the land of extremist stand, which he says, uh, instead of the graph of like the bell, it's like this, the, the graph of the E curve, right? Where it's exponential. You have fat tails. So one side of the graph is just going to fly and the feedback loop doesn't, it's not checked. So as soon as you enter into a world that's no longer tied into, um, to, to reality in a sense and grounded, then you have fat tails. So, um, I've used this example before because it really sticks in my head. But you, you know, say you were 500 years ago and you were the the queen opera singer in I don't know Venice. I love it. <laughs> Venice is now mine. <laughs> and uh, you really rose above that community and that region, and you became the best. And so you know you were well sought after at that time. Um, but there were restraints on you, right? You can only sing so many hours a day, and you can get tired. And then if, if you know, Rome wanted to call you over and have you sing the opera, it takes time to travel, right? All these things so that she may be um, the queen in her area, and you know, but, you know, if you're over in, you know, I don't know, in Norway, Norway uh, you know, someone else is going to fill that niche. And regardless of whether they're, like, super, like, as good they may be just as good or better or worse you know but like those niches all get filled by someone local and someone you know grounded in that time and space now right i i get on my phone and i listen to african music right and these guys are three thousand miles away and i and i just push a button and i like it and i maybe download it and listen to it now we completely taken over i mean completely 
unleashed ourselves from space and time in reality. But now what happens is that the 1% happens, the, the fat tail happens. So the feedback loops just has no restraints, no restraints in terms of locality, no, of space and time. And so you've got this, you know, so the, the popular people are the one that go to the top of, to, to present to you and you say, oh yeah, I like that. So you listen to it and you like it and it creates this feedback. So the popular people are the one that gets liked and the people who get liked are the ones that get popular. So you have someone who may get six billion hits on a song and someone who's just as good, maybe even better, but they, for whatever, the cards were dealt them, they don't never get any traction and they don't get anything, right? So if there had been, you know, that that opera singer in Norway, say she was just as good, maybe even better, but Venice somehow just is cooler in some ways to other people. So then... <laughs> Right, so you get this like the feedback system, and I think that that um, that plays into the whole scale. That plays into the whole, um, you know, what's appropriate. And Absolutely. And so that, those are yeah. those are systems that are put in place. And I will rant about economics because economics has built into some of its fundamental philosophies the aspect of that fat tail. Well, growth is always good. Yeah. You know, and and physics looks at what economics says and says uh, uh, perpetual motion much. <laughs> and, and there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of other other ways of looking at the world that say that that is not gonna gonna happen. And I guarantee you, having been a farmer. Mother Nature will come and put her foot down and say, yeah. nope, in various ways. You don't have to even know general systems theory, but nature will smack you in the face if you mm -hmm. have a farm and you abuse it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but because there have been these very large efficiencies put in place all subsidized through taxpayer dollars but yes yes yes, yes yes absolutely there they have been artificially propped up and artificially created and maintained uh the <laughs> the slap down happens in different places and in different ways mm. so there's aspects of how farming happens in iowa that then affects the gulf of mexico yeah. and so the the fractility of choice and uh, effect and mm. cause and effect and whatever else that way happens in happens in different ways and so if you bring it back down to a more local aspect where you can see and feel some of the the cause and effect that can help to have less uh yeah <laughs> i actually i remember i probably said this before on a podcast i think but um i remember this lady went and interviewed Wendell Berry. And he had used that statement, eating is an agricultural act. And Michael Pollan had written about it. And that's when Michael Pollan kind of took off. And he began, oh, I'm going to really just write about food and everything. And so, and that became like a rallying call for environmentalism. And so the interviewer went to Wendell Berry and said, oh, can you talk more about eating as an agricultural act? He's like, I wish I had never said it. And she was like, What? And he goes, because it's all meaningless unless you're rooted to a sense of place, right? So now we're like all concerned about eating, you know, environmentally well, but we have no ties to space and time. We're like eating grass-fed beef from New Zealand, you know, or we're getting supplements from, I don't know, Wagadougou. <laughs> you know, I mean, the world is so small, you know. And I think that was fascinating to hear. 
you know, we're not going to all be Wendell Berry and sort of be locked up in this, you know, kind of be a hermit and a Luddite and everything, but I do definitely... There are days I can gravitate towards that. <laughs> there are days where I would be that hermit luddite. There are there are days where I I definitely definitely see the appeal in, in different ways. So what do you think uh, comes into play? How do, how does a library deal with scale? Right, because you're so scalable. That's the thing about we are and we aren't. There are aspects where uh, we can make information available 24-7 if you have access to the internet. Mm. We can make um, some things uh, available if you speak and understand English. So if you are literate in the first place. Yeah. And uh, the the scalability of it, um, we're a land grant at Virginia Tech. So therefore, we're a public library. Therefore, anybody who walks through our doors, uh, we need to be able to try to let have access to all of the all of the things that we have going on but uh, within the time of pandemic and even before the pandemic we were trying to look at how we could supply the digital objects and subscriptions we have to different types of information to people who were not physically present in that space because our vendors say unless you're a virginia tech person you don't get to have access to anything and we're like that's doesn't work and so we've had this this workaround of if you walk through the physical doors you can access anything that we've got through our ip ranges at the library but that isn't fair to people that can't physically be there and if we're mm. truly supposed to be able to to scale then how are we going to be working with that so we work with different types of policies and procedures and it's actually a diversity equity and inclusion type of issue in, in different ways. Because um, yeah, I just finished saying that, mm -hmm. you know, it needs to be rooted to time and space yeah, and, and it scalable. And that, mm -hmm. in that context, is like bad, kind of like you scale too hard. But you're dealing with data. And you're dealing with kind of in a different... Uh, so, arena so yeah like, so we need to we need to be very precise about some language here yeah. so i'm going to talk to you about the data information wisdom knowledge d-i-w-k so data is not copyrightable duke <laughs> duke duke <laughs> nothing could possibly go wrong with turning that acronym into a word uh, we we generally do the d-i-w-k but we can we can roll with duke for you uh so so data is not copyrightable um and it is the, the building block to be able to get to information. So you have to put some, some work together with the data to turn it into information. And you must have information before you can have knowledge. And you got to have knowledge before you can be wise about something, before you can have wisdom. So you have to go through that arc to be able to work with things. So yes, in the library, we do deal with data all the time mm. we're also trying to be able to work with information and then we are trying to be able to help people scaffold so they can work through to knowledge and wisdom i can supply you with data but i can't do the rest of it for you you know mm. so that information knowledge wisdom is how people interface interface with the data and sometimes even how people interface with the information because you can so do some sense making parse, parse the data. out a little more the yeah. difference between information and knowledge and the difference between knowledge and wisdom all right so i can 
or and, even and, data information too. And, and this is this is I, I'm already making assumptions. I'm already making the assumptions that you have numeracy and you are literate, that you can count, you understand numbers, and that you can read and write. And so, if you don't have that, then the rest of what I'm talking about is is totally inaccessible. Right, well, we have to have a starting point. So <laughs> yes, so that's good parameters. That is I that think is that's a fair enough parameter. <laughs> Got to start there. So from there, um, many times you can think of data be coming in a form of a chart. So a spreadsheet, a, a columns, um, the temperature from day to day. So I can take the temperature on Sunday at 50 degrees Fahrenheit, and I can take the temperature on Monday at 60 degrees Fahrenheit, and I take the temperature on um, Tuesday at 65 degrees Fahrenheit. So those individual in pieces, those individual numbers are data. And then when I put them together to contextualize them to be able to say Monday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, mm -hmm. and then I say, oh, hey, look, there's an upward arc to that. So then we went from data to some information because there's of some patterns. of the, the, the framework to it, some of the pattern. Yeah. And then if we were going to take that information to knowledge, I can say, I would like to have a hoodie with me on Sunday <laughs> when it is at 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And I'd like to have some layers underneath the hoodie when it gets to 65 degrees, because I might be uncomfortable with that. Mm -hmm. And so then that is wisdom. I know myself well enough to be able to say that I want to have those okay, types so of layers. Back up what, okay, that's to wisdom, but what? Mm -hmm. back it up to what's the difference between information and knowledge? The information is understanding there was an arc. The knowledge was putting together the arc of the numbers with the placement in time and uh -huh. place. Uh -huh. And so even talking about that, you see how I just glossed over that? Because to me, it was the, well, you, you take the metadata around the data to be able to incorporate that all together and do some sense making. Mm. So that, so the, from information to knowledge was understanding the uh, 50, 60, and 65 are degrees in a Fahrenheit scale. And it was a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And uh, it was the... 60 through 65 degrees Fahrenheit from a Sunday to a Tuesday in Blacksburg, Virginia. And I'm going to be in Blacksburg, Virginia, and so therefore I should plan for that as opposed to being in Minnesota. So could you say context? There's contextual clues, absolutely, to be able to structure things together. So context, yes. And that context depends on the person you are and the knowledge base you have. So to go from knowledge to wisdom, you have to essentially incorporate self. You have to put yourself within that space and your understanding in those in those areas, which is why you got to have the person themselves for knowledge and wisdom, whereas the information can be supplied to you by somebody else. Is that useful at all? Yeah. yeah. Cool. I'm always worried about information and knowledge actually getting ahead of the wisdom. So, like, if things haven't actually been uh, ripened into to wisdom and you keep adding knowledge and keep adding knowledge, you kind of get ahead of yourselves. And then you can't, in, in a sense, internalize all this stuff. And then we end up with, and this is our whole world right now, it's like we're so information and knowledge heavy and we have very little wisdom. <laughs> we, do have, we, we do have little wisdom. And then where are we taught 
to be able to get to that peak of wisdom? Where are we taught how to handle our data? Where are we taught how to handle our information and then be able to contextualize it within the entire system's approach to be able to become wise? Particularly within the, and I'm going to say it, cult of science. Ah. I mean... I am, I'm technically a STEM librarian, and so I'm, I am supportive in when they break things down. They don't put me in the social sciences and the humanities. They put me in the science yeah. sides of things, and I believe rightly so. I, I, when we do have to make divisions, and I said that word very specifically because it could be concerning to be divisive, but when we do need to break down into divisions, um, putting agriculture with the sciences makes good sense for some reasons. Um and then when we are talking about the cult of science and this is the way to approach the world, um, there could be some, some challenges in that space. And I think that the challenge, one of the challenges of not being reductivist mm -hmm. and not reaching for lean and efficient first is part of the way that science is taught because science does rely many times on take it out of its environment, put it in the lab and then look at it. And that simple act of removing it from the system yeah. to be able to look at it through our microscopes and record it in different ways means that it acts differently or cannot act at all the way that it would within the system. And so then our data is wrong. And so even when we do exactly. go through the entire data information, wisdom, knowledge, if our baseline data is inaccurate. Now you're preaching. My, oh, my gospel. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We, we talk about this for a reason. No Venn diagram is a total circle, but man, do we have some overlap. So when our data are incorrect, when we think that they are correct, then we're hosed from the yeah. get-go yeah. within, within that structure. And so when we do put things back within the system and start asking questions of how things act and work in the system, then the data can be more complete. But then we totally need to have metadata. And I didn't define metadata earlier. And so that yeah, catches ahead. things up sometimes. So and then I'm going to give an example to flesh wonderful. out your, your so analysis. So metadata are uh, data about the data. So being able to put the data within a framework. Um, if you think about it, when you're catching frogs, the, the metadata are the, you know, the GPS coordinates of where you found your froggies and the, the metadata are, you know, who caught the froggies and the, the type of net that you use to catch your froggies and the bucket that you put them in. So there you go. So now what's, what's your analogy or your yeah, example? Yeah, well, you were talking about the whole cult of science and you're talking about getting bad data because it's removed. And my latest pet peeve is about legumes. Oh, yes. <laughs> preach, 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 preach. And uh, I just had uh, someone come for um, a visit, like a, a potential intern, and they do a farm visit. And we were walking, and he has a fair amount of knowledge. He uh, actually had been on a farm some and worked some, right? But it was within a, a context of a university. And so very head knowledge, right? So... So this guy, he's a potential intern coming to do his farm visit. We're walking around, and he's had some academic uh, learning as well as some on, you know, on 
um, hands-on skill. So he goes, oh, so what do you do for nitrogen fixation? <laughs> I had no idea what mine he had just stepped on. <laughs> and I turned to him and I said, do you see any green on this field? He said, yeah, it's very green. I said, okay, now here's an area where there are legumes. Here's some clovers. Here's some white clovers and some red clover. And, uh, and uh, over here, there's none. But is it still green over here? He said, yes. <laughs> I was being a little obnoxious, but I was making my point. I'm sorry, a little obnoxious? What was, what was that word choice that you just used so I can use it again in the future? Okay, please continue. No, I was making a teachable moment, so there hopefully it wasn't go. too obnoxious. And I was like, if it's green, it's fixing nitrogen, because that's one of the main things. It's supporting chlorophyll, right? And uh, I always have to give you know kudos to, um, or whatever it is, to uh, uh, Christine Jones, because I've learned so much about soil from her. But there are thousands and thousands of microbes and bacteria that fix nitrogen in you know, in in an economy, in a relationship, in a symbiotic, you know, system with plants and plant roots, but the only ones we know about are the clovers, right? And so you and why legumes, legumes, yeah, uh, more than just the clovers, all, all legumes. So, and the reason is because when you go to do some testing in the lab, you take the soil. And then you like take all the roots out and you sterilize the soil. And then you find out that, oh, if you grow some legumes and you put this special, was it rhizobia or something? It's a, the bacteria that goes with the, the legumes. And If you hadn't tried to say it, I could have said it. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes some extra, you know, ammonia or nitrate, whatever it is, right? And sometimes other plants can have some nice. But... Meanwhile, and, and, and that's not bad, right? A, a, anywhere I have pasture that's been, uh, had more impact than your typical ruminants, right? So you've hit the grass back pretty hard, harder than you would normally want to if you were just doing ruminants. Like if my hogs have been through an area, they have higher impact. And because you've set the grass back a little bit, and so so much of them is being spread by uh, rhizomes, right? That, you go, yep. Right? can't hardly say all these words but um then the clover has a chance to establish itself or get in there for a while until the grass really thrives again right and so great i love legumes that's great fantastic that's part of the system they're coming in there but we have this idea that oh my goodness uh no 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 stop who's we in this instance okay this is even uh, this is most everybody i am definitely in the tiny tiny minority so here. when you say we so, you don't mean you when you're saying this next thing that's right. All right so we as in like the general like if you go to nrcs sure um, it was all about general soil. General grazing advice? General grazing pasture advice. They want you to get up to 20 to 30% uh, legumes in your field so that you can take care of your nitrogen needs. Right? So that we have this idea that we need inputs. We have this idea that the economy, you know, that plants aren't working. They're, they don't have their own economies. We have to give inputs. And worst case scenario, that would be like in crops and stuff where you're actually putting synthetic nitrogen. And then you have all the problems with that runoff and everything. But they want to get, and it seems like such a natural, wonderful thing, right? Get some legumes. It's a natural uh, way of getting nitrogen to your soil. But 
and there's nothing wrong with legumes, <laughs> let me assure you, right? But we have this idea we need to be putting the inputs, and we don't have faith in the thousand other you know, microbes and bacteria that didn't survive the lab tests, that didn't survive this extraordinarily violent, disruptive arena of the lab, of the test, and they do wonderful things out there. And so if we have a land that hasn't been hit as hard, so it's mostly just been the, the sheep and the, and the cows that have been grazing and we only, you know, take half, leave half kind of thing, then the clover does not get up to 20%. It just simply can't uh, compete that way. And so am I bothered about nitrogen? No. But you'll read, even in like Stockman Grass Farmer, right? This is like the grass-based, you know, uh, grass-fed cows. And everything. They're like, we got to get that clover up. And so what are they doing? Like some of them are like uh, grazing really hard to impact their land, to really go down, you know, and, and graze it so the grass will have a hard time um, coming back and the clover can. I've been to a farm where he literally grazed until it was bare dirt, Right, and it would pop back up, and would also part of his reasoning was so that the legumes would have a fighting chance, and he wouldn't have to keep seeding it. Right, you can even read about people wanting legumes so bad that they spray herbicides on their pasture to give the legumes a leg up. Right, so we've like completely lost sight of the whole story. We're all about inputs. Oh, we need nitrogen. When he's staring at her face every day is green. <laughs> So we know that this plant, right, nitrogen is, what, like three-quarters of our atmosphere? And it's there. And if the plants are working and we have a healthy ecosystem and a healthy, you know, economy underneath with all those roots and microbes and um, mycorrhiza and all that, then they're going to get nitrogen, legume or not. Um, and so if I see a legume, great. If not, and so I used to frost seed because that's what I was always told to do. I'd frost seed clover and I'd be like, oh man, didn't really take. Should I do something? And then I'd just get too busy and lazy and I wouldn't. But at this point, I'm like, why am I fighting the systems so that my plants can be green? And then I look outside and all my plants are green. So that's a great example for me of, of we have taken the soil and we do these tests, we do these soil tests and we say, oh, what's in your soil? That's only what's in your soil to be absorbed passively, only what's going to be in your soil that can handle the sterilization, only what's going to be in your soil that isn't inside that rhizosphere around all the roots, right? And like forget your your fungi, forget your glomalin, forget your all that stuff. That's been completely annihilated in this extraordinarily violent uh, arena of this soil test. And so that's my latest pet peeve. <laughs> I do have to say that I will put a plug in for soil tests for anybody that is new to gardening and is coming into a, a new environment that they don't know what has been happening with that land for 10 to 15 years previous because I had some friends that moved into uh, a new mm. house and they were really excited to garden. They put tomatoes in because they knew how to do tomatoes and the way tomatoes work. There was a lot of arsenic in the soil mm. and uh, the tomatoes uh, concentrated so that pretty pretty strongly so be careful of some of the types of contaminants that can kill you and so i'm okay with soil yeah, tests yeah. for understanding well those, that could be considered a different of... resolution yeah right you're absolutely. looking at broad strokes yeah yeah like uh what's your ph mm -hmm. that might help you out mm -hmm. uh what's your yeah do you have arsenic <laughs> in yeah, your please, soil please please um, have less uh, less arsenic so but those are you know that's 
Yes, I could see, I could see, um, and also if we take it from data to information, right? Yes. So you put it over some time. So like you say, oh, well, I would like to know, like people are, you know, we're saying we're building hummus, mm-hmm. hummus, humus, and uh, we can build hummus, we can build hummus too, <laughs> <laughs> building yum, humus, yum, yum. or you're building carbon, <laughs> you know, sequestering carbon. It'd be great. You take a, mm-hmm. a snapshot here, a snapshot there, and over the time, mm-hmm. and then you can mm-hmm. compare. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not typically the way we use soil tests. We use soil it tests not been, no. to try to figure out what ingredients we need to add and completely forget um, that it's the plants do the, the work. Well, we were talking about different resolutions here. And so when you were talking about, you know, oh, 20 to 30 percent of your pasture should be leguminous to be able to have this nitrogen fixation or whatever else that way. I kept wanting, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I'm like, but, but you have to think about it in systems. And so when you do have a rotational system, when you've got your piggers and your sheepers and your cows, and yes, those are the technical terms. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, and they're, they're following each other because you, whatever order needs to happen is, is appropriate to, to your farm. And just for the sake of this, this uh, argument, I will say that you send your, cows through and then maybe you'll follow up with sheep or or maybe not depending on what you're trying to um, prioritize in that go through with managing your grass and the soil underneath and so then you give it a rest period and then the grass grows back and then you send another set of critters through to be able to the pasture Mm -hmm. and so if you send your piggers through at that point in time then there's going to be a different stressor point on that uh, that grass. And so if the first couple times through the clovers didn't have really a chance to really fight their way forward after the piggers go through, they will. And so then the next time through, there might be more clovers that are accessible for the cows and the sheep and whatever else that way. But then it'll also give a chance for the grasses to come back because you have given them rest periods in between the grazing events. And so you can work with that overall. And the other systems approach that I was thinking about between your... So you're talking about oscillations. That's a total general systems theory thing oscillations well you have different language than i do yeah. because i got taught this stuff as a kid and when you were taught this like i grew oh, up I'm, with it I'm right i'm just trying to it's well i love it no i do i learn i learn language from you which is super great but that was one other thing i was thinking when you're talking about it, i'm like i would go out with my grandparents and they would just teach us how it works but i didn't have necessarily any of the science behind it which and is there better than having the science <laughs> and there wasn't even science behind it at, at some points you know it was just here's 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 how it does work within this rhythm and whatever else that way. And so the other part was that depending on your rain events and other types of things that way, you know, different types of um, green things, as you're looking out and seeing green, uh, are going to grow better in different conditions. And so I think having a mix to that can be important. But yeah, I I don't know about having... I'm all for diversity. So if I got oh, yeah. legumes and they're mm-hmm. and they're thriving, mm-hmm. but that's so you talk about leverage when you're talking about um, general systems theory. You talk about where's your point of leverage? Yo. And usually it's not in the data. Yo. Usually it's not at that granular resolution, because things <clears throat> sort of ratchet themselves up into systems. And once you've got a system, that's a leverage point for all the data that it includes. Right. And so yeah. typically when you do a soil test or you do things like that, they're they're trying to get at the very granular data. Oh, well, you don't you need to put some phosphorus in, or you need to put more nitrogen or more potash or or here's some minerals you need to add, right? So they're all they're looking at it from that um, 
very granular, individual, atomistic point of view. The general system theory is going to say that's not your strategic point of leverage, right? You leverage is implying there's a fulcrum, and because of that fulcrum, you can move massive amounts and get more bang for your buck, right? So even if it's not necessarily wrong, mm -hmm. it may be very strategic. So mm -hmm. it's much more strategic to, I think, of the, each of the animals as a leverage point. Mm -hmm. Each of the animals is a different leverage point for impact. And so... Yes. Hi, baby. <laughs> and so, yeah, right? And so rather than trying to, to access things and change things at that data level that i mean that oh i was just reading vandava shiva Ooh, here we go um, and uh what's that book uh the oneness versus the one percent ah yeah yes and so she it gets talking about gmos of course she hates gmos right i mean intellectual property and the story of india and the story of bill gates and the story of monsanto in india is one of you know it's just god awful Right. I mean, this is just colonialism all over, but even more pernicious and very Orwellian because it's all in the name of <laughs> of helping them. <laughs> you know, it's God awful. But what I really enjoyed, the one part she started talking about, well, they go in there and they, maybe they take CRISPR or something and they change one gene. Right. They change just one tiny little you know, protein or, or whatever. Before you keep rolling on, CRISPR is a technique that uh, works with genetic changes within material, like seeds or plants or a genetic line yeah. that way. It goes in there and somehow... Because I work with people that do stuff with CRISPR and I still get confused what CRISPR is. So okay. yeah. keep rolling. Yeah. And so she said, you know, what the, the genetically modified seed, right? Because they've, they've brought cotton there. Like, I think it was like glyphosate resistant cotton or something right and it just utterly destroyed the economy there and that's why we have like the suicide farmers or whatever and it doesn't even work she says it's not even it like it may have one season of where it's like prolific but it's just not resilient at all right and so she said the, really what's the thing is that they're entering it in again at that granular resolution they're changing one tiny gene and she's like that's not we know that's not the way genes work you don't just turn on one. It's a community of genes, right? So all these genes are interacting. Again, it's another system. It's another economy. It's another whatever you want to call it, uh, a, a community of genes that um, get turned on and express themselves. So he said even just within the DNA, there's no such thing as one thing being turned on. Groups turn on. And then on, then you just, you know, resolution, you just pull back just one hair and suddenly you have epigenetics, right? So all these things of nutrition and whatever is affecting your DNA, they're going in there and they're turning on genes or groups of genes and communities of genes and whatnot. And then, you know, back up and you just keep backing up. It's, it's all within the system. And so usually you might change one gene and might you think you've got what you wanted but it's like change 35 other areas and who knows what dangerous detrimental god-awful things you're doing right so to compare that for the leverage right the strategic point of entry we farmers have been breeding plants and animals for millennia right and why do, how do you do that well, you don't go into the individual thing you look at you, when the system is as a whole and say, oh, well, this one has done really good. Like I choose my sheep. I, I take a mama. She's got to be able to, um, you know, have decent sized lambs. I want her by, you know, she can get away with a single the first year, you know, but the second year she has to have to, you have parameters, 
right? And should I wait for the tractor? I don't know. I think that waiting for the tractor would be nice. Oh, now the tractor's waiting for us. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll wait for it. Case we. Yes. In case we make it. We can, then you can edit it to yes. make it all nice and stuff. <laughs> Not to put it all on there. Where was I? Talking about, oh, oh, yeah, so we breed, right? So you have parameters and you say, oh, well, this one has performed well. And they all come as a package. You can't have, you know, if you start pushing one thing too much, you start losing another, right? It's this whole diplomatic. You mean thing. the principles of yoga come into <laughs> oh, effect here? I guess you so. Yes, you have, to, you have to move in the direction of flexibility and of strength at the same time <laughs> because if you push too far for flexibility, you lose strength. And if you push too far for strength, sure. you can't bend over your muscles to be able sure. to be as flexible. Right? So it's a different point of entry. Yeah. You don't enter into it, that granular DNA. As, as much as exciting and amazing and like absolutely impressive, incredible things we do with science, it's not appropriate. And like I... I was on a webinar, uh, and they're a vegetable farm, and um, great. I like. I think they do a great job, and they try really hard to, to raise things well by taking care of the soil. But they were taking tests of the sap of the um, plants. It was interesting. They were like, oh, soil test isn't telling us too much, and you know. But now we're taking sap things, and and I think it was a question or two, and they said, oh, well, this is way over our heads. We don't know. We don't understand. You know, and then. And I just love the instinct. Um, the lady was just like, well, you just look at your plants, <laughs> right? If they look healthy and they're fruiting well, then you know. And I thought, there it is. Her instincts are right. Even if they're trying to get some information from the granular data or whatever, ultimately what took priority for her was that endpoint. Well, that's looking at the system as a whole. Is it thriving, right? And so, like, it's a very different... I guess I was trying, this was all in the context of trying to explain, like leverage point, <laughs> strategic leverage point. <laughs> yeah, anyways, uh, I got on a little rant there. That's what we do. That's what we do. That's what we do. We hang out at market and we go on rants. <laughs> and that's, so we talk, far, we talk, we talk farming. And that's why it was the F-A-R-M-I-N apostrophe. <laughs> that's right. Yes, because it's opinions and feelings and instinct because... There's, there's a level of mastery that you have to understand the individual bits. Mm. And then I, I truly think that the level of mastery is when you understand how you can put them together. Mm, how they interrelate at the, yep. meta, at the meta systems. Indeed, the indeed, metadata. indeed, indeed. And so when you can start having that, uh, so I, I play music. I don't play as much music as I would like to, but I'm getting back into it. So I, I think about that where you can hear where the next note is supposed to be. And so when I try to play something by ear, like sometimes my finger doesn't know which key to push on the keyboard to be able to get the sound that I can hear in my head that I know is supposed to be next to be able to complete a musical phrase. And so when I think about mastery within the, the scope of farming, it is to be able to understand the placeness mm. and the time that you're in and mm. the, uh, the, appropriate, uh, the appropriateness within that, within that space. Space time. Space time. Space time. Sci-fi. <laughs> That's totally another overlap of our Venn diagram. Sci-fi. Because we have to. We absolutely have to, to talk about that. And speculative fiction is one way to understand our world. Uh, you've got a background in philosophy, which is super interesting, how that comes out in different ways. I love that. To be able to consider 
consider different things overall. So we've been talking for a little bit of time now. We took some breaks in there, but we could we could keep talking and just see where things go. I think this would be way too big <laughs> to be able to be one thing in particular. But uh, what do you think? I don't care. I mean, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. I love the certain podcasts I listen to where mm-hmm. it goes on for a while. It's just mm-hmm. two people chatting. I think there's a lot to All right. Well, we've got one click of battery left, so let's keep going now because we do have more batteries. So. Well, okay. Well, I'll throw it back at you, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you keep grounded as a librarian, right? Because you're dealing with so much analytical stuff. You're dealing with how do you know, like how... What are your, okay, here's the question. I just defined what leverage and uh, strategic points of entry. How do you find that wisdom and that mastery to know where are your points of leverage so that you can enter into strategic ways? Because you can't just be teaching everybody the basics over and over and over and over again, or this data here, data, that's way too much. Okay. Or does that, is it, I don't know. So Did that make I, sense? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, you talk about, you talk about hitting a tender spot. Here we, here we go. (laughs) That's what friends are for. for. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, um, before, before diving, before diving into how I can ground myself as a librarian, I will take a second to be able to, uh, define the terms of tactics and strategy. The idea that those are different levels of resolution. And so if you're going to have the strategy of being a grazing farmer, your tactics can be that you're going to open the gate to let your cows into the next piece of grass. So there's different levels of of resolution or granularity to be able to work it and that kind of thing. I think the operations level is in between strategy and tactics to be able to figure out out how to be able to connect connect those. So operationalizing to be able to use some of the, the business corporate speak mm. that I get to work with within so what my is academic that, sphere. What is operational in the in the opening the fence to the... Uh, so if your strategy is to be the grazing, uh, the grazing farmer and your tactic, uh, your is, tactic to... is to open the fence, your, your operation is to be able to understand for that day which field you're going to and which critters you're putting into that pasture and then when you finally get to the point of opening the fence to be able to let your critters walk through what happened to be cows in this instance then that's your tactics for that day in that kind of that kind of space and so as a librarian i do work with data 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 i do work with information and we do have those questions about how do we decrease the barriers for people to have access to information? And that's one of the reasons that I said there needs to be a baseline that folk need to be literate and have numeracy to be able to work with these concepts in the first place because sometimes we, uh, we, encounter, we encounter aspects where that isn't the case. English as a first language, English as a second language. Mm. If I want to, I can speak Norwegian. If you wanted to, you can... Uh, Parlez-vous français? Un peu de français, oui. Yeah? Yeah. I don't have enough French to even return anything to you aside from... I don't know any Norwegian. Oui! <laughs> uh, but we have English in common, so we, we communicate in, in English to be able to, to work with that. Um, and I feel I'm getting a little bit into the weeds there, but I also feel like that's something that I need to grapple with on a regular basis, or I will get too high in my ivory tower. 
So to keep myself grounded, I come to market and talk with you and make sure that I can talk smart about farming and that I don't get myself disconnected. I uh, lean really strongly into the fact that we are a public library and that we do need to keep the general public in mind. I lean very strongly into the fact that we are a land-grant institution and that we have a mission, like part of our mission is that tripartite mission of research, teaching, and extension, to be able to extend the knowledge from that space into into the community um, and that we're supposed to serve the community uh, around us. And then I'm a little bit of a rebel when I insist that there needs to be a feedback loop, that we listen to the communities that we're in, and then we need to be able to respond to what our community is saying um, and not just tell them what we're going to research. And so um, I'm doing a PhD at this point in time, Mm -hmm. and I'm in the Agriculture Leadership and Community Education Department. And um, considering the community organizing and just the community-ness of it all mm. is something that is that is central to how I do things. Um, I actually just did a value card sort the other day to be able to put some language. A value card sort. A value card sort, oh, yes. I don't know what that is. Okay, so a card sort is that you have different concepts on physical cards, and then you put them down, or they could be digital cards, and then okay. you arrange them oh, okay. to be able to do some sense-making. It's a library technique, and you can use it in, from, from other... Uh, it's a sense-making technique, and so different mm. disciplines use it. Um, and so if you can identify your values, because you've done a value card sort, so you've card sorted using the, the terms on the cards or values, then by the end of it, you should be able to talk about what your values are, and then if you can make decisions based upon your values, you generally regret things less, right? So if you can articulate your values, you can live them more thoroughly. And I had a whole bunch of things, a whole bunch of those values, that I'm like, this isn't quite talking about what I want to get to, but all of these things are important because if I don't have power, if I don't have agency, if I don't have uh, autonomy and discipline, I can't take care of other people if I don't have good boundaries. And so there was a lot of those values that I ended up having to create my own because there is a, a, a point for that where you can create your mm, own value. Mm. And that value was taking care of others. It's like, I got to take care of other people. And so that's a community type thing critters you're taking care of critters they just happen to be human they happen to be (laughs) two-footed they they, they they're two-footed and they are four-footed and and then i also think about uh taking care of the ideas and thoughts from our past right so uh libraries are memory institutions museums archives are also memory institutions part of our job is to be able to hold data and information so people can do some sense making of their own Um, And so I feel I also have a responsibility to take care of the data and information. And some of that data information uh, needs to be contextualized at this point in time um, with big old warning boxes to be able to say, like, in the time that this was created, uh, here was the understanding. And so if you don't Mm. have this this framing, Mm. this could be really dangerous. Case in point, the... um, Herbicide applicating, uh, mm. herbicide applicator. Uh, the it, certification, or yeah, the, just in the, the handbook. There we go. The, oh, the handbook. <laughs> yes, the the pesticide or herbicide um, applicator's handbook. 
if you take the one from the 50s, oh boy. <laughs> that would be really like dangerous and DDT, inappropriate. Yes. DDT, uh, all sorts of things. Like, let's not kill more uh, more eagles, right? Because the DDT was to take care of the flies, which then got into the rivers and then the fish, and then Killed the eagles ate them. And then, <laughs> and then you know, the, the eagles' eggs uh, were fragile, and so fewer, fewer eagles were being born, right? So using that knowledge without the framework like if you're not if you, that would be a bad thing so part of my job is to be able to consider mm. that that arc and that framework and getting all the way back to what you initially said about you can't just keep teaching the basics yes and i have held my current gig for six years and i i get to do many different things with my job um my boss is pretty sweet. When I say I want to do something else, she generally just looks at me now and says, but what are you going to set down? And so I have not done the same thing for those six years, but there are some things about my job that have remained the same mm -hmm. over that, that period of time. And um, a very standard thing for a research librarian to have in their arsenal of skills, tools, things they have to do is called a one shot where you get to go into a classroom and you have one shot to be able to yeah. teach the people there, wow. what you need to teach them about <laughs> library and information resources. And so you do one shots. And glorified you do a, elevator pitch. It's, it's a little bit of a glorified <laughs> elevator pitch. And so uh, I tell people if they forget everything that I taught them that day, they have to remember that I'm their librarian and I'm here to help. Right. So if I can do nothing else, I can establish that I'm their liaison librarian. I am there to help. I'm help. I'm there to help scaffold. Um, to be able to meet them where they're at, to be able to get them to the next step, and then maybe even show them a couple lily pads beyond, right? And so uh, there's there's that aspect of things. And uh, colleges are set up, and our university is set up so that we have undergraduates and we have you know master's students and we have PhD students and people are, are taking themselves... <sighs> through the bullshit, more shit, and piled higher and deeper <laughs> aspect, right? Um, so when we, when we think about the understanding that different people have and their entry points, their points of leverage, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, one, of the, one of the most important things that I can possibly do is to listen to the individual or listen to the community and they tell me where they're at, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Just like you're looking at your, your grass and you're looking at your critters. So they tell you where they're at. And then you need to have the mastery. I need to have the mastery yeah, yeah. to know the system well enough to be able to say that, ooh, if they keep heading in that direction, they're going to cause themselves some challenges. They don't know it. They don't understand it. So let me redirect to be yeah, able to. You, you have to be the person that leads them to the point of yeah. the, the proper leverage mm -hmm. point. Yeah. And so then part of my job truly is to be able to come back to that, that rhythm and that heartbeat of making sure that the, the basics continue to be met, that the data and the information is there, that I keep looking at the different types of barriers that are created in different ways as we access things through our phones, through the internet, who has internet, who has electricity, our rural people being dis, uh, fairly disadvantaged because there's the digital divide. Mm -hmm. uh, and and um, making sure that that baseline is not eroded as we move forward. And um, then I get the leverage... I don't want to say leverage, that I get the luxury after that baseline is taken care of, I get the luxury of being able to do other things. 
to be able to, to work with different stuff. So I, uh, I'm looking to be able to teach classes where it's not just a one shot. So last fall, I got to be able to teach a semester long course about identity and inclusion in agriculture, which was amazing mm. to be able to do that. And so that definitely grounds me to be able to think about working with some folk in a more longer term arc to be able to more deeply explore some things. So this podcast is a way of keeping me sane <laughs> <laughs> to be able to explore things in a, in a deeper in a deeper way to, to help me engage. But that question should be asked of anybody who, who says that they are a professional, anybody who wants to say that they are in a profession and they are a professional, you need to have a way to engage with the basics and keep the basic system operational and running. And then you need to be able to change resolutions to be able to work yeah. on your tactics and go open that gate and remember how that works, you know, and go, oh, sugar, I forgot, you know, where the electric gate was. And you get a zap and you're reminded so you don't get too high up in that ivory tower where it's all just about strategy. Mm. But when you do have a level of mastery and you do have the luxury of resources, and that includes time and money and energy and health and all of those things that are that are privileges, you know, um, to operate at that strategic level and then look at those ways that you can create more points of entry for people and, and different ways to be able to show help, take care of, you know, that's, that's a part of it. And I'm learning, I'm learning. I'm thinking of like when I, when I, look like when are the times that I look to a library and it's usually sometimes it's when I'm either starting something new and just looking for some like and I want to reinvent the wheel or it's usually when things are not working right you know and then that's when I think that the science and the reductionism and the anal analyzing things actually is important to, that's when it's appropriate because analysis is always surgery you know since you're doing some surgery oh my goodness you know this is not working out and i i don't have enough ex my experience is not covering i don't know what this is i don't know what's going on and uh and then i look to the library as one a source of uh like you're talking about memory <laughs> the history and hopefully there's some you know but I, you know, I look to someone to you because I need it curated because Absolutely. there's so much there. Absolutely. So those are the times that I feel like um, that's when I turn to the library when something when when I no longer when I don't feel like I'm out of my depth. And you you have some skills in information seeking already. So you have you know a couple places and a couple ways to be able to do some information seeking before you would look to. Yeah. Um, asking a question of a librarian, you would know how to use the library in, in different ways. And you probably have a personal library mm -hmm. and you've, you've built up some, some stores of information to be able to, <laughs> to, um, and I can surf the internet a little bit. Yep. Yep. 
And so for all the people that say, say that librarians are not needed anymore because we have Google, who the hell do you think keeps Google operational to be able to make sure that people can actually find information? And here's a second rant. Let's talk about the algorithms of oppression and about how bias is baked into stuff and that we need to interrogate the way that information and data have been put together, housed, structured, and searched to have some... Uh, have some equity and appropriateness within mm. that, within that space. I have opinions. They are capital O opinions. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Out yeah. of my depth there, though. I mean, I understand the concept. It's mm-hmm. a certain systems thing, you know. Oh yeah. Often, when you keep getting the same result, it's pretty much within the structure of the system that keeps pushing it that way and yep. getting a consistent result um, yeah yeah I think that it is always fun to talk with you and think about yeah. different things yeah this was fun yeah also I like I, I want to learn how to do maybe some interviews with people but I like the, just yeah. like for us we have mm-hmm. a, you know we have a lot of talks to fall back. We have a yes. we have a relationship that makes makes mm-hmm. it sad. But I like it when we can have talks yeah. that are very laid back. I forgot about the microphone for a bit there. It's fun. It's good. Yeah. Well, let's let's call that one good. Be able to play with it a little bit. All see. Right. That was enjoyable. See what we're gonna do with it. Thank you very much, Cedric Shannon of Weather Top Fun. <laughs> I hope we can do this again. Yeah, that'd be great.